Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and this week we are revisiting one of the most fun conversations we have ever had on this podcast with the one and only Allison Brie. You probably know Allison from her roles on Community, Mad Men, Bojack Horseman, Glow, and the dozens of other TV shows and movies she has appeared in over the past couple of decades. When she joined me for this episode last fall, she was promoting the movie Spin Me Round, which she co-wrote with director Jeff Baina and co-starred in with Jeff's wife, Aubrey Plaza. But as she told me then, she was equally excited for the next movie she was making, this one with her husband, Dave Franco. This past weekend, their new movie, Somebody I Used to Know, premiered on Amazon Prime Video. I got a chance to check it out last week and thought it was just a really well-put-together rom-com that showcased what Allison is capable of on screen, as well as anything else she's ever done. I really, really enjoyed this conversation with Allison about her recent work as a screenwriter and many of the other highlights from her impressive career, including some early buzz about the community movie that is now apparently actually going to happen. And I don't want to make any promises quite yet, but we may have one of her co-stars from both Somebody I Used to Know and Community coming up very soon on this show. So definitely look out for that as well. But for now, here's me with Allison Bree. Well, yeah, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I feel like you are, must be coming off a very busy period with promoting this film. You've been kind of everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> are you enjoying it? Do you like this kind of thing, the, the press cycle for projects? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I actually think that I like it more than most actors I know, I, which is not to say, oh, geez, I just spilled coffee everywhere. It's not to say that I like it. It's less that I love it and more that everyone I know hates it so much. Uh, <laughs> and then you know what? I really don't mind it because I like talking about my work, especially something like this that I wrote and produced, you know, that I really have been a part of since its inception. And like, um, of course, you know, inevitably it does feel like you're doing the same interview often, like a hundred times, but <laughs> it's fun, especially in a post COVID world to get out and about a little bit and put on some fun outfits. It's like, it's part of the job. Yeah. Well, we'll try to make this not feel like every other interview you've ever done. <laughs> Good um, luck. Yeah. Did you yeah. like how I opened with that? Yeah, and now yeah. I've it's a challenge. <laughs> set the gauntlet for you. Um, well, I do want to start with the movie, um, which which probably will cover some of the same territory as other interviews. But we uh, but then we can we can move on to some of your other work just because I was, you know, been looking through all of your, you know, resume and IMDb and and reading other interviews that you've done. And I just still feel like you've been in 
more things that I genuinely love than than most people who come on this show. So I, I want to get to as much of it as we can. Um, Thank you. But I also really love this movie, um, Spin Me Round. This is your second film written with uh, Jeff Baina, who directed. So for anyone who hasn't seen the movie yet, um, you play the manager of a uh, Olive Garden-style restaurant that's not called Olive Garden, um, and you end up going... Neither confirm nor yeah, deny. Yeah. <laughs> so you said it, uh, not me. <laughs> Tuscan Grove, right? Yes. Um, and you go on this, you get this opportunity to go to Italy and you're with all these other managers from around the country and um, in this sort of like, it's supposed to be this great opportunity to learn about Italian culture, but that's not actually what ends up happening. And then there's this character of Nick, who is the... Uh, who runs the company, runs the, the restaurant He's chain. the owner of the franchise, yeah. yeah. And he kind of, you do kind of get a an opportunity to see other parts of Italy through him. So can you talk about that idea of, of this character? Because I know you, you've talked a little bit about how he was inspired by men you've encountered over the course of your career. So where did that come from, that idea? Well, um, you know, in Jeff's original outline, Nick always sort of existed and and was this character that kind of loomed large over everything and was like this real driving force in terms of um, the things that happen to Amber once she's there. Um, And and it should be said that like all of the... um, Epstein stuff was sort of going down while we were writing this. That was on your mind a little bit? Yes. I mean, and not, it wasn't part of it, obviously, when Jeff originally conceived the idea five years prior or something, you know what I mean? But by the time we were writing it, yes, we actually even had some dialogue that we ended up pulling out where we were name-checking Epstein and Guilan. Um, But (laughs) people thought, I think, that it was a little too... um, that it would maybe cause like trauma for people watching oh, really? it. Yeah, you need a, a, um, a trigger warning. Exactly, and and because we wanted to keep the tone fairly comedic throughout the whole movie, I think we were sort of like, oh god, we don't, we would never want to have that effect on anybody watching. But yeah, then I think just a lot of my process with Jeff when we're writing is is sharing stories and experiences. So some of it just has to do with adding specificity to the scenes and to their conversations and or like the mo there's a moment where Nick is sort of talking to Amber in detail about something but she kind of zones out and doesn't realize what he's talking about which is which is uh <laughs> which was my contribution based on a, a an experience on a sort of date that I was on with a man once I'm not honestly to this day, I'm I'm still not sure if it was a date. And at the time I wasn't sure if it was a date and it went on for way too long. And at one point I did, we were in his car driving and I just was looking out the window, kind of chilling out. He was droning on and I was just like agreeing like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, cool. And then eventually I kind of tuned back in and realized that he was talking about tantric sex and was sort of like, what have I agreed to in this moment? But nothing happened (laughs) with that guy. But, uh, you know, so just kind of stuff like that. And I think also the just the nature of his character to the need to be manipulative, like obviously by the time Amber comes to this program, there is some sort of well-oiled machine that's been going on with him and his assistant cat played by Aubrey and the women in this program. Um, but where we catch on to it, it's like it's breaking down. Like it's finally kind of start <laughs> stopping working because of the characters in this movie and their actions and kind of how they react to everything. Well, I think, you know, by the time this comes out, um, 
we will be able to a little bit um, spoil the ending for people or at least talk about it. Um, but I'm curious, did you have alternative uh, endings that you were sort of considering before you arriving at uh, the massive orgy scene that you decided on? No, it was always no, an it was orgy. A, it was always that? It was always an orgy. If anything, it, there were earlier drafts that were much more graphic involving our main characters. Um, and then we sort of, changed them even I, it's so funny writing something in a vacuum and the stuff that we would find really funny and then as you go to send a script out to people to ask them to do it with you and you go like maybe we should take out the part where that character is like you know her face is in that guy's butthole like I, maybe <laughs> that actor <laughs> yeah they might think twice maybe she yeah it's like i, I mean italy's need... great but it's not that great Sort of like, let's pull it back a little and then see where we want. Um, but there were there were there were some variations on it for sure. The scene that actually we rewrote the most was the very final scene between Amber and Nick at the restaurant, um, because it was just sort of like a fine line, and we were never. I mean, I know I'm like trying not to spoil or something. It's like yeah, well, you it was skip, ahead, skip ahead if you don't want to know, right? <laughs> Yeah, here's that. That's the that's the trigger warning. If you want to skip forward, um, I think our idea was always for Amber to land on her two feet. Like the main thing that we were both excited about was the idea of somebody going on a trip like this, thinking it's going to change their life, and then coming home and nothing has changed at all. Um, but then we wanted to obviously color in shades of like. Amber has grown a little as a person. She has learned to assert herself um, in some small ways and like that that's a step in a good direction for her. Uh, but it was just sort of sort of navigating like how she would handle seeing Nick, how that kind of rejection might go. We also toyed with the idea of Kat being involved in some way in the ending, which we I, we get asked about a lot. Um, and even, and, and as we were writing this too, uh, Happiest Season came out and people really, you know, watching the fans' reaction to Aubrey in that movie and how much they wanted her character to end up with Kristen Stewart's character, we were like, oh, should we have, we were like, okay, so that's probably going to happen again here. Should we change it. And we went down that road a little and tried everything from like a full, I mean, we didn't fully write, but we were toying with the idea of like a full, should they like end up together in the end to like a tiny nod of like, maybe they're just still texting. Um, and ultimately it just, that we kept coming back to the, the thing is that that's not what the story is about. You know, it's like the whole point of this movie is actually that Amber isn't supposed to find love. She's more just supposed to take something away on her own as a human being and be a stronger person in the end. Um, and also, I think, speaking of like uh, the Epstein-Gilan uh uh, part of it, I, I think we also had trouble reconciling Kat's behavior in the movie. Like, people love Aubrey, and she's very magnetic to watch, but that character has been complicit in bad behavior for yeah, a long she time. She was totally enabling all of his bad behavior, so for you to end up with her would seem a little bit like, well, that's not great What's either. the message? Well, I think it was, a, yeah, it was sort of us kind of trying to decide, like, where does the movie stand on Nick's behavior? And we don't want to be complicit in being like, that's all fine. Like, and I think ultimately 
Amber and Kat are not meant to be together forever. She's the kind of person that you meet on a vacation and they have a big impact on your life and and you never see them again. Yeah. So I want to focus a lot of this conversation on your comedy work, um, but I feel like we do have to at least touch on Mad Men, which was uh, your your big break in the the drama world. And um, that came very early in your career, right? I mean, you really hadn't done much before you got that role. So... How did that happen? And what was it like for you to all of a sudden be in this, you know, I guess you didn't know what it would become at that point, but it still was a big drama, you know, uh, show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was so cool. I, I I was 24 when I started working on the show. So I was a couple years out of college and just auditioning for everything, just like in the grind of like going to acting classes and having a new agent. And um, I had shot an episode of Hannah Montana. I had shot a a B horror movie called Born. Um, Do not recommend. Uh, um, Actually, it's probably pretty a a fun watch, but woof. Um, And then I got... Uh, I got the opportunity to audition for Mad Men. And so I th- I think it was the fourth episode of the first season. So the show had already been picked up and was a show. Um, but it did feel very mysterious because it was for AMC, which uh, to that point, you know, it was the first scripted content for AMC. So at that point, I was just like, it's for that network that shows old movies. It felt like strange. But the material was so good immediately. Even the sides were really great. And I remember being very excited and taking the audition very seriously. Um, I got called back a couple times and then I didn't hear back and I was really devastated. Um, And then like two weeks, I mean, like I felt like maybe it was only a week. It felt like an eternity because in television time, and I knew so little about it then, but you still knew that things were pretty fast paced because it would be like, you'll audition for this episode and it shoots Monday, yeah, you know? Right. So yeah. like to to wait a week or a week and a half and to have not heard back, I was like, I didn't get the part. And then, and then I just got a call that I got it. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. Matt Weiner told me later that the director of the episode, um, did not want to cast me, but that Matt went back. But I think they just had a lot of trouble casting the part, which which uh, is goes along with most of the roles that I've gotten in my life. We would say the same about Community. They had a lot of trouble casting the role. I came in at the last second. They, Matt Weiner went back and watched my tape. I wonder what that is about your uh, about your auditioning or something. That... <laughs> luck. It's called luck, I think. <laughs> so when I signed on to do that, it was just, I mean, it was always just a recurring, a possible recurring guest star role. You didn't know how much you'd be coming back, if at all. Exactly. And it was a big deal that, before I was even done shooting my first episode, they asked me to come back for the very next episode. So I felt really good about that. And then for the subsequent seven and a half years, uh, Mad Men was like my boyfriend that I was pining for. I was like waiting by the phone all the time. I would, I would like sign on to other like not important jobs, but you know what I mean? I'd take some other like independent horror movie and be right about to shoot it. And then Mad Men would call and be like, actually, can we put her on hold? And I'd be like, cancel the whole, yeah, drop yeah. out of that thing. I'll just wait around. Uh, it was very exciting. But but as I said, yeah, it was hard to know at first that it was even going to be anything. I just knew it felt like a really good job, especially coming out of theater school. The material was so good and so nuanced um, that that was really exciting. 
Yeah, and I mean, and even though you weren't a series regular on the show, you got to really grow and change as that character and kind of over many years and sort of through the cultural changes of the time. And I feel like by the end, you're really like standing up to Pete and and having these really, you know, the character changed too, which you don't always get to do um, unless you're, you know, the one of the main, main characters on the show. But that show gave that opportunity, I think, to a lot of characters um, who were there the whole Definitely. time. Definitely. The writing on Mad Men was so good. And I do think exactly what you're saying is why it was such a good show, because every character, even if someone appeared in one episode, they had a backstory. Like every, no character was just one dimensional. And Trudy is a great example of that. You're right. She really grew and changed. Every time you saw her, something new was going on. She got to sort of come into her own power and, and sort of break some of the norms of that time period, the fact that they were getting divorced and doing things like that, you know, she was a great character. And I feel like to this day, there are things that I've seen I've even forgotten about and people on, you know, Instagram will send me videos or or clips of a, a scene that's now a gif or whatever. And uh, And I'm like, yeah, Trudy was a badass. Couldn't you just pretend I let you have that apartment? Somehow I thought that there was some dignity in granting permission. All I wanted was for you to be discreet. She lives on our block. Trudy, don't jump to conclusions. There's no way for me to escape, to not be an object of pity while you get to do whatever you feel like. I have never said no to you. Oh, that is not true. What are we doing out here? We're done, Peter. This is over. You want a divorce? I refuse to be a failure. I don't care what you want anymore. This is how it's going to work. You will be here only when I tell you to be here. I'm drawing a 50-mile radius around this house, and if you so much as open your fly to urinate, I will destroy you. Do you understand? You know what? You're going to go to bed alone tonight, and you're going to realize you don't know anything for sure. I'll live with that. She had a lot of great little one-liners or, you know. Yeah, definitely. Well, and then, of course, the fact that you were not, you were a recurring guest star meant that you could do things like go beyond community as a regular, which is very rare to have two shows like that going on at the same time that really couldn't be more different um, in a lot of ways. Um, how do you feel like those two experiences compared? Because you would be doing one in the morning and one in the afternoon sometimes and, and going running back and forth. Did it feel like two totally different worlds or how did you, how did you kind of deal with that at the time? Yes. It felt like two totally different worlds. And I would often say to people like, you wouldn't recognize me on the other set, especially to the community people. I was like, the Mad Men set, I mean, people were totally having fun. This is also my experience was so different, you know, depending on where you fit in the hierarchy of a show like being a regular on one show meant that I was much more comfortable on that set anyway, because I'm like, uh, I know I, I, it's not like every time I'm here, I'm having to prove myself and hoping that they'll bring me back for another episode, you know? Um, to me on the set of Mad Men, I was, uh, very quiet, very focused. It was this dramatic show. And also because, of the nature of Trudy's storyline. Most of the time, it was just me and Vincent Carthizer. Every so often, I'd be in a big party scene or something like that. But so it just did feel like doing Mad Men felt like doing Chekhov or something. Like I was over on the quiet set with a single actor and we were like digging in. 
And the community set was like a children's playground. It was like an explosion of noises and sounds. We never stopped talking. We never stopped doing bits. We would just be talking, talking, doing bits right up until action and then go into the things like, you know, even between takes, we shot such long hours over there. And like, uh, just to entertain ourselves, we were always making silly videos. And um, as that series went on, it really felt like we all developed our own language. I always kind of felt for guest stars who came in because we would try to be very warm and inclusive. But at the same time, the jokes that we were making were based on like a, a, a bit that got cut from an episode in season two. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're, it's always funny to me. And I did go back and watch a lot of the community episodes during co- during COVID, like in 2020. Yes, because it went up on Netflix and we all, I don't know, the gang was just sort of, Ken and Joel were doing their podcast. It was just sort of like, so at the forefront of my consciousness again. And I went back and watched a bunch of episodes and I just was laughing because the thing, when I watch it, I'm remembering the experiences and the jokes that we were making behind the scenes. And some of them, as I said, are not even like, the jokes in my mind are an alt line that never even made it into the episode. So like the fan experience of the show is quite different from our experience, I think, of of, of making it and watching it. Uh, but yeah, we were like little kids. It was really fun. <laughs> you recently uh, made some news by hinting that the the movie is in the works, that it, things wheels are turning, and then Dan Harmon kind of confirmed it, and everyone's very excited. So, yeah, were Dan you, uh, said a lot more than me, and I was relieved. <laughs> were there things that you were that that he said that you you were holding back? Yeah, because <laughs> you because you don't want to get in trouble, or yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get in trouble. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think as as more time goes by, sort of the expectations grow for this, you know, six seasons and a movie thing. And the movie, the, what the movie has to be seems like it, it must get more and more uh, nerve wracking in terms of what fans are demanding. Yeah, I can imagine, but not for me, because I will have nothing to do with the writing of the movie. So good luck, Dan. <laughs> I sort of am like, let's do do fan service. Don't try to do something that's so crazy. Let's get us <laughs> back at Greendale. You know what I mean? I'm like, don't, don't, I don't know. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Um, one question that I had, which I, I'm curious about is um, whether you think Chevy Chase will be part of the movie, you know, given how much everyone has spoken out about how difficult that uh, that working relationship was. Sure. I really don't know. I don't really know. But I mean, I would venture. I, 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 you know what? I'm not going to venture to say anything. I just don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> I mean, you've you've been pretty open about that. And, and Joel has as well in terms of that there was some some challenges there just with the uh, having to do with the age gap and maybe him maybe like those guest stars not really understanding what was going on all the time. Sure. Yeah, I do think there was a disconnect with sort of what Chevy um new as comedy when um when he was making the majority of his work and and um sort of not being able to understand the way comedy was changing and had changed and things like that um but i 
like, for the most part, you know, I really got along well with Chevy. <laughs> Not trying to be a Chevy apologist, but I will say that that uh, for the most part, he and I, we, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, I feel like Donald Glover will also be a big question mark for the movie because he's gone on. I mean, he left the show early, of course, and now he's gone on to do um, so many huge things that I, I wonder if he would be back as well, because I'm sure people would love to see him return to that he's character, even though it's, it's a little bit hard to imagine at this point. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I would love that. And I also feel like everyone would be so amenable to like, whatever we'd have, you know what I mean? Like, let's carve out a single day green screen. <laughs> Could we send someone wherever Donald is in the world and just get a shot of his face <laughs> saying something? Yeah. Well, it's exciting that it seems like it's actually, uh, that it's actually gonna happen. I, I hope it's gonna happen. The wheels are turning with community stuff. I'm just like, I feel very optimistic, but also I'm like, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> Coming up, more highlights from Allison's incredible career, including why she decided to apologize for her voice performance on BoJack Horseman and what it's like to simulate sex with Will Ferrell. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with some of Allison's co-stars, like Tim Heidecker from Spin Me Round and Christian Schaal from BoJack Horseman, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Allison Bree. So, you know, I want to move on to some of your your other uh, TV work that I've really loved as well. Um, you know, BoJack Horseman is one of my uh, all-time favorite shows, and I think um, it's just, it's so incredible. I loved, it was, I don't know if you saw, it was, it was trending on Twitter recently because someone made a comment like, uh, if your friend is re-watching BoJack Horseman, you need to check on them. <laughs> like... <laughs> Everyone was commenting on that, like it's a if you because it's just so intense and dark. Um, but I I love it. Um, oh, and, I didn't see that, but that's yeah, that's it's a truth. I think that makes sense. <laughs> um, that's another one where I'm sure you didn't know what it would become when it started. Um, and you and you got the opportunity to play that that character. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I remember at some of the first few table reads because we really always would get together to do live table reads with the full cast. Uh, which was really great. Um, Raphael Bob Waksberg would always be like, 
it's just going to get darker and darker. And the <laughs> Netflix execs would be like, okay, we're, that's fine with us. It was sort of like this uh, game of chicken. <laughs> but, uh, but actually, Netflix really was so supportive of that show and letting the writers, um, you know, take deep dives into the characters' emotional states. And I think it's what makes that show so unique and so beautiful. The jokes are so good and the comedy is hitting on every level, especially in the animation of it. I feel like if you go back and rewatch stuff, there are things happening in the background of most scenes that are funny in terms of with animal, like meta animal stuff and stuff like that. Um, But meanwhile, the characters' emotional journeys are deep and and yes, very dark. And Raphael lived up to his word in terms of saying that the show would only get darker and darker. And at the same time, they they were able to hold on to the comedy in every episode, which I feel like it's just why that show is so unique and, and wonderful. Do you remember the last time I saw you and you asked me if I thought you were a good person deep down? Do I remember that? Yeah, vaguely. You really caught me off guard. I, I didn't know what to say. Well, do you think I'm a good person deep down? That's the thing. I don't think I believe in deep down. I kind of think all you are is just the things that you do. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> For what it's worth, I think your writing does make a difference. Thanks. I really wanted you to like me, Diane. I know. I remember talking to Paul F. Tompkins about it a long time ago, about just how the his he was able to do this sort of really intense acting in a way that he hasn't been able to do in anything else as this Mr. Peanut Butter cartoon dog. Like it's so it's it's so <laughs> yeah. incongruous in some ways. And I'm sure you you felt that as well. Like there's you did some really intense work on that show. Definitely, definitely. Um the relationship between Diane and Bojack was um was really could could be very intense at times and also was very nuanced. Um also some of my favorite romantic scenes, yes, with Mr. Peanut Butter. <laughs> some of my uh some of my vocally most graphic sex scenes were done with uh <laughs> <laughs> the Mr. Peanut Butter. Um, it was really fun. It was it was a great gift in in terms of uh, voice work. Yeah, to get to do so much in in one show. Yeah, I mean, I know you did end up kind of issuing an apology of sorts because the the character was written as a Vietnamese woman, which I I, I think it's like I don't know that you. Been. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard because it's like, it's not, it's not your fault. Like you, they cast you in the role and that, and, and, but I guess times have kind of changed and there's been a, a few instances of that in the past few years where people kind of realize maybe that, that we should be casting animation differently. Is that why you decided to sort of speak out about it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's embarrassing, I guess, to admit that it, it, it was just total lack of self-awareness, um, or lack of awareness, I guess, uh, in terms of, of accepting that role. And I, and, uh, yeah, it just, it's a shame because, um, I know a lot of people really connected with the show and I, I, uh, I, I wouldn't want that to take anything away from anyone. And, and it still is a meaningful job for me. And, um, but it's certainly it's, it's, it's marred by that. And, and it was a mistake and there's nothing you can do, I think, but just kind of own that and then moving forward, learn and and change, hopefully (laughs) make different decisions moving forward. Yeah. I feel like you're, you also have some very underappreciated voice work on that show as Vincent adult man, who is one of my favorite characters as well. 
Thank you. Yes, a more appropriate character yeah. <laughs> that I can play as just a bunch of children standing Stacked on each on other's each shoulders. Other. <laughs> yeah. Oh, buy me a drink. Uh, okay. What's your name, Stud? Vincent. Um, adult man. Vincent, adult man. You hear that, Bojack? Vincent is an adult, and I'll bet he knows how to treat a lady. He very clearly isn't and doesn't. Would you like alcohol? I certainly would, you sophisticated, smooth talker. <clears throat> Tell me all about you. Mm, I like business. Uh, transactions? <laughs> Are you seriously trying to make me jealous by flirting with what is very obviously just three kids stacked on top of each other under a trench coat? Yeah, I love that. And then, of course, uh, there was Glow, which is another incredible show and sort of a game-changing one for you, I know. Um, did that feel very different to kind of now be... This was your first time, you know, Community, you were one of the main characters, but it was an ensemble. And this was an ensemble, too, but you really were out front of uh, of Glow. So what was that like to then be on this, you know, big Netflix show um, as number one on the call sheet? Yeah, it did feel very different um, from the outset. And I really pursued that role. I feel like I've talked a lot about it, but I, but I really kind of chased the role and I auditioned a lot for it. And I just had, it's another, I, I mean, I had never read anything like it and totally Glow encapsulated everything. It felt like all the work I had done up to that point would all be showcased within Glow and then some things that I had never done before. Uh, the physical aspect of the show was so exciting. And it was exciting to be um, sort of the captain of that ship. And I took it very seriously. I think when we were working on Community, Joel was a great number one. He really looked out for us as a cast and he knew that he had more power in terms of speaking to our producers or the network about issues or any, you know, anything that might come up. And he was really great about supporting us as a cast. And I really took that seriously in my role on GLOW and wanted to kind of be there for our cast of, uh, of women, a lot of whom had not been regulars on a show before. Um, and that was really fun for me to kind of step into that role. I enjoyed it. And, and that the whole show was so, it was life changing for me. I've covered a lot of milestones there and, um, it really did feel like a different way of working. It was it's so different from Mad Men and Community. Um, and, and it was also run by, by two women as opposed to, you know, those, those, both of Mad Men and Community were run by men who I know were, were, could be very demanding and, and had strong personalities. <laughs> so that must have been different as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, like like leaving a dictatorship <laughs> for a democracy. Uh, no, I don't, no, no. I think also it, 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 it was meeting me also where I was in life, you know, feeling like I could take on more responsibility on a show given the amount of experience I had by that point coming into that feeling like an equal and a partner with my showrunners who were amazing women, Liz Flayhive and Carly Mensch. And and it, the whole thing was very inspiring to work with so many women behind the camera and in front of the camera. So the whole show really had a different vibe. And it's interesting to me not to uh, make this political in any way, but we we pretty much shot the show like during Trump's presidency. <laughs> that was the whole, yeah, those four years. And 
Yes, and I think I'm so glad that we had the show as this outlet while that was going on and sort of that we did feel like the art that we were making was, for me, reflecting my beliefs and uh, sort of, you know, it was this really feminist show. It was very empowering. And I also felt like we tackled some issues that are still, we're still fighting for, like abortion rights. <laughs> yeah. How do, you, how do you feel like the show really spoke to that moment and that, and that era and, and, and responding to what was going on in the world, even if it wasn't, you know, explicitly? Well, like Mad Men, you know, it's, it's always great to do a period piece show because you have this distance, but you can still in a roundabout way, comment on what's currently going on through the eyes of like, uh, you know, let's let's look at how far we haven't come since the 80s, since the 60s. So I feel like that was a great tool when uh, when we were shooting Glow. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, it was this huge disappointment, I know, for you and for everyone involved and for all of us who were fans of it when it got um, sort of unceremoniously canceled, uh, right? It was right sort of at the beginning of the pandemic, right? It, well, it was really like a year into the pandemic because we had shot the first couple episodes of season four at, in March of 2020. And it really took them a long time to officially cancel the show. So there was a lot of pushing it's getting pushed again. Well, it's getting pushed again. Well, we really won't dis- discuss it. If it would come back, it wouldn't be until next year. So there were a lot of signs. I think we all were sort of like reading the writing on the wall a little bit. And at the same time, holding out hope because we had already been in production. We had some stuff in the can. I think the hardest part about it was that Liz and Carly had individually talked to each of us about what our storylines would be for the final season. So I know the full arc that was intended so, for the season. Yeah, it's so strange that, to then it, it, and not get to finish it. It feels like this unfinished thing, right? Yeah. And then at the same time, look, the fourth season was already supposed to be our final season. So even prior to shooting it, I will say there was already some mental work going on in terms of letting the show go and sort of saying goodbye. So it's a little bit of both. Um, so before we get towards the end here, I want to run through um, a few of your uh, film highlights, uh, in, in, especially in the comedy world, and just see if there's anything that kind of comes to mind or, or pops out uh, in your memory. Um, starting with uh, the five-year engagement, which was, I think, one of your first big studio comedies or the first, um, uh, the scene that, that that I always think about is the uh, the wedding where, where Chris Pratt is singing at you, uh, that beautiful song. Um, and, and, and how you, <laughs> and then and we how, sing it during the ending credits. Yeah. And how I, I was wondering how you were able to keep it together for that. But is there anything else that, that stands out in your memory from that experience? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm great at keeping a straight face. I don't break. This is a skill I honed on community yeah, in, in the all blo- the in scenes the bloopers, with yeah, Ken Everyone John. else is breaking and you're, you're not for the most part. It was like that. I felt like that was my challenge with Ken is because Ken was always fucking with me in the classroom scenes. And I was right in the front row. And it was just like, I just felt like it was my duty not to break. So that's that's a point of pride for me, for sure. But the five-year engagement, one thing that I will never forget, and also my uh, publicist just reminded me of this, that, that Judd Apatow actually thought I was British, (laughs) <laughs> when he cast me. So they had me come, the way I got the role 
I don't even remember if I did an actual audition, but they asked me to come to one of the early table reads for the part. So I came and, uh, you know, they weren't offering me the role, but this was something I used to do a lot of comedy table reads back in the day. I would go to all, oh yeah. And it's how I got a lot of my early jobs like that and get hard. And um, I'm trying to think of some other ones, but anyway, so I went and did the British accent to like Emily and then, and then Judd just thought I was, was British. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I consider that the biggest compliment. And I guess that's sort of how I got that role. I also feel like um, my Elmo voice had another was another big factor in terms of getting the part, which I studied a lot prior to that table read. <laughs> so you know I'm keeping Tom company this week, right? Yeah. <laughs> Alex keeps him company without also having sex with him. Listen, I think that is a really rude thing to say. Mommy, do Elmo voice. Elmo thinks you should do what you feel is right. And Violet, do Cookie Monster. But me think that's a really rude thing to say, Elmo. (laughs) Well, Elmo say it's been five years, almost five years. You either love him or you don't. Me love him, but it's very complicated. Cookie doesn't get everything handed to him on a silver platter like Elmo. (laughs) Cookie, that's a career he wanted. Tom moved to Michigan so Cookie could work, okay? Elmo wanted to be a kinesiologist, and instead, Elmo is cleaning puke off her shirt every day. The challenge of that movie, even though it was fully scripted, it was all of these improvisational giants and Nick Stoller was directing it and Chris Pratt was was new-ish on the scene still then, right? He wasn't the huge superstar that he is now and his mind is so brilliant and fast. Like he just would come with all of these alts ready to go, kind of um, had these jokes in his back pocket. But the shooting of that movie was sort of, it felt like a constant audition or something. Like every time... There's a lot of scenes in that movie where we're all making speeches at their different, uh, you know, their like rehearsal dinner and their wedding shower and stuff like that, and uh, or like engagement dinner, and and those were for the most part all improvised, and the rest of the cast would just sit and watch. It was it truly <laughs> the most nerve wracking thing I've ever had to do on a set where they were like loosely scripted, and and then one person would just get up and the whole cast was just the audience. Like you were at an open mic night. You know what I mean? Like, let's see what you got. Um, And then a big relief if something really landed. You were like, oh, thank God. (laughs) Um, You mentioned Get Hard, where you get to kind of go toe-to-toe with Will Ferrell, which is another must-have been kind of insane experience. That, That was really fun. I'm such a huge Will Ferrell fan. And when I think about, you know, Will and Molly Shannon, who we talked about, a lot about earlier. For me, their era of SNL was, that was the main SNL cast for me. When I think of like the height of me watching that show and loving it, it was all of their their stuff. So to work with Will, Will Ferrell was such a dream come true and also really easy because so much of my sense of humor had been influenced by his work, you know? So when I got on set, I was just like, oh yeah, my sense of humor is his sense of humor. (laughs) I've I've cultivated it based on his work. Um, And he's so kind, just the nicest possible guy. Uh, Our first scene that we shot together, I'm 
just like in lingerie, sort of simulating sex with him. That was and he the was first like, scene. yes. And, and he just was so like too polite. Like, I feel like at a certain point I was like, but Will, do I look all right? Like, because <laughs> he was, he like was avoiding, between takes would just fully avoid looking at me in any way. I was like, Will, look at me. <laughs> look at me. Am I attractive in this outfit? <laughs> he was like, yep, yep. Oh, yeah. Looking great. Yep. Good job, pal. Like, <laughs> look, there's winners and there's losers, James. It's what drives this country, right? People look at what you have and they want it. They want your huge house. And they want your hot, hot wife. Who's the king? I am. You need a king? How much money are you going to make today? Enough to choke a baby. That's right. The other one I wanted to touch on is The Disaster Artist, another movie that I love. Um, and that was, you know, another one where you're with your uh, husband, Dave Franco, directed by uh, James Franco, who I know uh, stayed in character as uh, Tommy Wiseau while he was directing oh, yeah. you. Is that right? Yeah, for the most part, yeah. And even if... His demeanor wasn't so in character. You know, he had all those prosthetics on his face right. and the so hair. So couldn't escape it. <laughs> yes, you really couldn't escape Tommy, which was bizarre. Um, but but also pretty cool. I love that movie. I love that story. And Tommy as a person is so interesting. Um, he told Did you when, get to meet him? The, Yes, I met him when the movie premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. Dave and I were backstage. We were all going to come out and do, you know, like a Q&A after a screening. And uh, Dave and I asked Tommy what his favorite scene was in the movie because he had just seen it for the first time. And he said, our scene where we're in the pool talking. We were like, what? (laughs) Why? And he goes, very sexy scene. It's a sexy scene. I was like, he, he likes I'll you. take it. Yeah. I was uh, like, yeah. take note, Will Ferrell. That's how you compliment a woman. Yeah. I, I saw it at South by Southwest and I was spent a lot of the screening turning and looking because I could see Tommy in the audience, like across the aisle. So I would just like be watching the movie and then checking in on how he was doing. What a character. Wild. What yeah. a character. Yeah. James was really incredible in that role. Um, so with the with the little bit of time that we have left, um, I want to do our final segment, which is called The First Laugh. So I'm going to ask you some, some firsts uh, in your life and career around oh, comedy. Great. So starting with um, all the way back, the first piece of comedy or one of the first that you remember making you laugh really hard as a kid. Oh, wow. Um, first thing that made me laugh hard as a kid, probably The Princess Bride. Oh, yeah. Same. That's a great um, one. Yeah, gosh, I was obsessed with that movie and like wanted to really learn all of the lines and uh, and watched it over and over and over again. I loved it so much. Although, wait, now I feel like I have a second answer, which would predate that, which is um, Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh yeah, another great one. <laughs> Another great one and super surreal for like a kid's show that kids watched, you know. In retrospect, um, maybe it wasn't a kid's show. I don't know. Right, right. Um, but yeah, God, I loved Pee Wee Herman and Pee Wee's Big Adventure. 
and all that stuff. And then I met him. He was um, the president of the Alumni Association at CalArts, where I went to college my first year when I started there. So like for like the kickoff new student barbecue, he was there and he was definitely trying to sleep with my high school boyfriend. But you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's what it is. (laughs) It is what it is. (laughs) Uh, Do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny that you could make other people laugh? Oh, well, when I was a small child, like young. I used to do like five, six years old. Um, I would do these sketches for my family and their friends when they would come over. And um, <clears throat> my main sketch, we, I would it was like one of those things where I would take, you know, me and my sister and the other kids that, that were there, we'd all go into the bedroom and we'd plan out like a few sketches. Then we'd come out and do a big performance for all the adults. And uh, my main sketch was a commercial, like a fake commercial for something called edible wieners. And I would take a hot dog and put it between (laughs) my legs. And then I'd put on a trench coat. I'm now realizing where the Vincent Adultman connection came from. I would put on an adult's trench coat and go out in front of everybody and do like this commercial that was sort of the gist was like, you know, are you ever out walking down the street and you're hungry and you don't have anything to eat? introducing new edible wieners. And I would like flash the coat and have this little like, uh, you know, hot dog penis. And then I would take it out and take a bite and be like, it's your penis, but you can eat it. And our parents <laughs> really advanced. thought that was funny. <laughs> I can imagine it being, picturing a six-year-old doing something like that. I imagine it was quite funny. And But yeah, those were my earliest laughs. And I really, <laughs> then we would like redo the same sketches over and over. You know, it was like, our bits. Those those were my SNL characters that anytime those same group of friends of my parents would come over, we would use whatever food they were cooking to do a new sketch. <laughs> so Yeah, you had a you had a runner with food, yeah. Exactly. Food based, like dirty jokes. Um do you have a uh, a story about an audition from very early in your career uh that stands out in your memory either because it went really well or because it went really poorly or just something that, that stands out uh, in a, from hmm. an audition? Um, so many strange auditions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say my audition for Born, the terrible horror movie that I referenced earlier, was like one for the books. It went really well. I feel like they offered me the job on the spot because the character... <sighs> What was the the character um, becomes pregnant with a demon fetus and then the demon fetus possesses her. So in the audition, I just and I was like right out of theater school. So I went into this audition. I was just like rolling on the ground and climbing (laughs) over furniture and doing different voices. And when when we shot the movie, uh, there's these scenes where I'm like, my character is fighting with the demon fetus that is possessing her. So I'm having conversations like with myself and they told me that they were going to put some kind of special effect on one side of the voice, but they never did. So the scenes are just (laughs) me being like, please don't. Yes, I'm going to. Like, you did it. You did it so well. They didn't need to put special effects on it. They were like, "That looks fine. Yeah. That looks good enough to us." Um, do you have a a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? Ooh, um, 
I'm sure I do. I'm sure I have so many, but I can't. We can, we can uh, skip that one if nothing's coming to mind. But Well, something comes to mind, but I wouldn't call it from my career. This is like a high school story. Okay. Yeah, that works. In, high school, in my high school drama career, I was very involved in my high school theater program and you really had to sort of like work your way up to getting the lead roles. So my senior year, I finally had the lead role in the spring musical, which was Dracula the musical. And the tradition was also that that the leads would get this amazing bow. So when for the curtain call, it was highly choreographed where the full ensemble would come out and bow and everything was sort of and then the leads would come from the back of the auditorium running up the aisles, you know, onto the stage, onto this lip of the stage, you know, that we had built an extra little platform and take their huge bow. And during one of those shows in which I had like a bunch of friends, uh, we come running through, running up around the sides, go to go down the lip and I trip and face plant fully, like out of a movie, the whole auditorium stops clapping and, (gasps) and then I like, popped up and was like, I'm okay. And everybody was like, we have to keep clapping. And later, like the next day before the next performance that we did, my drama teacher had to have a meeting with the full cast to be like, we have to stop talking about Allison tripping. It happened. We've all had a good laugh and now we have to move forward. Oh my God. (laughs) Did you know everyone was talking about it? Yes. And I remember being like, I'm happy that I tripped because I it doesn't bother me. So it's good that someone <laughs> yeah. else didn't trip because maybe they'd feel really upset, but but I don't even care. Yeah, I'm sure they all bought that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finally, I like to ask my guests what's making them laugh right now. So is there something that you've seen recently um, that really made you laugh? A TV show, a movie, something online, anything that, that you could think of that really uh, made you laugh recently? Yes, um, I... I've loved the show. I love that for you on Showtime with Molly, uh, with Molly Vanessa Buyer, yeah. more Molly Shannon, Shannon, also Aiden Mayuri, who is in um, um, Spin oh Me God. Around By as the well. Way, yeah. She is hilarious on both. She is both. so funny. I had never seen her before. I love that for you, and then I saw her in your movie, and and so funny. Get ready to see her everywhere because yeah, I feel like, like she's just about yes and. She's actually, she was in after part, The After Party, which was on Apple TV that my husband Dave was in. So I he recommended her. I don't think I realized that was her. She's one of the pregnant Jennifers, Jennifer yeah, she Two. Doesn't get to do, she doesn't have quite as much to do in that, I think, as it's these other true. ones. Yeah. It's true. But that's another thing lately that really made me laugh. But Aiden is so funny. Dave recommended her. We put her in Spin Me Round. Dave and I just made a movie that we wrote together called Somebody I Used to Know. We shot for Amazon. Aiden is in that movie. Oh, We're fantastic. just I'm like... I want her to be in everything I do. And she's just as funny in I Love That For You. Also, Matt Rogers. Like, everybody, it's such a great cast. And Vanessa Bayer's uh, style of comedy is, like, my favorite thing. The cringy awkwardness. She's so funny. I laugh out loud every episode. I love that show. Yeah, (laughs) so good. Um, Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to that movie uh, that you have coming up. Yeah, Somebody I Used to Know. Yeah, Thank you. Is there anything before we go that you can 
say about that and, and what people can expect? I don't want to say too much about it, but I, I'm so excited about it. It's an, we have another great cast, Jay Ellis, Kiersey Clemens, Danny Pudi. Oh, yeah. Uh, community former reunion. community alum. Exactly. I think it's the first time Danny and I have acted together since community. And it was so fun to be back on set immediately our antics from the past, you know, were right at the forefront and a lot of them made it on screen. I think that community fans will be happy to see our characters together in that, even though we're playing different characters, obviously. Um, and it's fun. It's a romantic movie. It is a comedy, but it's also got some more dramatic flair. So, you know. Well, this was really a lot of fun to get to talk with you about um, all of these many, many things. I feel like there's even more stuff we could have talked about and didn't get to, but um, it's been really great to, to have you on and uh, congrats on the movie. Thank you so much. This was great. All right. I want to thank Allison Bree again for taking so much time and sharing so much of herself with us for this episode. Somebody I Used to Know is streaming now on Amazon Prime Video, so please check that out if you haven't already. We'll be back with an all-new episode next week, but in the meantime, if you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.